Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Obamacare at the Supreme Court, Part 2. So, Richard, we did our last episode earlier this week in anticipation of uh, King B. Burwell, the, <clears throat> the Obamacare case before the Supreme Court. We're recording this show one day after oral arguments when there's been a lot of sort of tea leaf reading going on about what the justice said or didn't say, as it may be. I want to get to some of the specific issues in a moment, but let me just start you off with this general question. Is this approach much ado about nothing? How reliable of an indicator is it to just look at what the justices are doing in oral arguments? Well, in this particular case, I think that seven of them at least have worn their hearts on their sleeves, so the suspense is not killing. Uh, The four liberal justices made it, I think, unmistakably clear that they're going to vote to say that federal and state are all as one because they cannot abide the circumstances that a piece of legislation that they strongly support in principle will be struck down on quote-unquote a mere technicality of one kind or another. I think the three conservative justices, Alito, Thomas, and Scalia, um, have made it equally clear that they regard this as a perversion of the statutory language as an overtly political end and that they will not indulge in that kind of behavior. Uh, The two who are most uncertain are the two men who sort of sit uneasily in the middle. There is Justice Kennedy who mused aloud about a coercion argument that would make the statute if confined to states only unconstitutional without telling us what it would happen. And there was Justice Roberts who essentially kept to his own devices and didn't telegraph one way or another. I mean, Clearly, there's been a huge targeting by the dominantly liberal media on this point to get one or another of these guys to break, making it clear to Justice Roberts that his his entire legacy will be impaired if he reads the statute in a way which strikes down the uh, employer's mandate when funded through the federal exchanges. So I don't think there was much by way of surprise in terms of the posturing. The only surprise was Justice Kennedy's rather novel suggestion about why it is that the statute in some sense may have constitutional flaws. Yeah, well, there's two issues that we brought up. There's that one and there's another one that we didn't talk about in the uh, previous episode where you said you thought Kennedy was probably going to be a vote against the administration here. He spent a fair amount of time yesterday talking about Chevron deference, which is something our lawyer listeners may know. But for the broader audience, explain what that is and why it's important here. Well, I mean, to explain what it is, it's rather difficult. Let me just set up the basic (laughs) problem because the number of different interpretations are very large. The Administrative Procedure Act contains a provision, Section 706A, which says that all questions of legal interpretation shall be decided by the court on a de novo. That means on the grounds in which you start from afresh. Uh, In the Chevron case, there was a question of whether or not a bunch of smokestacks should be treated separately, each as one separate source or collectively as one source from the plant. And Justice Stevens says, I don't know what the right answer is, but I'm going to defer to the agency on this question of how it should be done because they have expertise that nobody else has. And so what he said in effect is on questions of law, uh, when the administrative agency speaks, we defer to them unless the statute, quote, unquote, turns out to be 
clear. And then he muddied the waters by taking a clear statute and making it unclear. So nobody knows what the line between clear and unclear is. He never cited the applicable provision in the statute, section 706, when he kind of declaimed this way. So the theory of Chevron deference is in its pure form. If you have a clear statute, you follow the command. If you have an unclear statute, then you defer to the agency that's in charge of its interpretation. So now the question is whether or not an exchange established by a state is clear enough so as to be what they call the first step of the Chevron doctrine, the clear part, so you just read it, or whether you can invent some sort of lack of clarity with respect to it so that you now defer to the administration. And to give you why this is so troublesome to so many people is you can imagine the statute is put into place when the Democrats are controlled. The year is now 2013. The book is still on the books. And now you get a Republican president and his guy doing it. And when he comes up with it and he says established by these states means established by the states and anybody who gets it under the federal exchange is not able to do it. Under the Chevron clarity test, he wins because he's just tracking the language. And under the Chevron deference case, he wins even if you think it's ambiguous. But if it's an Obama administration and it's ambiguous, the whole thing can flip over 180 degrees. So there are constant battles between people who believe, ah, it's administrative expertise that really matters, so we have to defer. Or no, it's the rule of law that really matters, and we can't allow these guys to turn every statute into upside down takes. I I should have to say to you and to the audience, my own view is that Chevron is a colossal blunder on all questions of law. Judges interpret the regulations in the same way they interpret a statute and they interpret the statute in the same way they interpret any other statute, with or without the administration. If the administration's got some expertise, then they just present their arguments and the judges consider them. But the thought that you would derogate to judgment to them when they are highly politicized in both parties seems to me to be a terrible mistake. So I'm a very anti-Chevron guy and have been uh, my entire professional career, at least for the last 31 years since Chevron has been in place. I think, in effect, the rule of law applies to administrative agencies, and I think, in effect, that once you have a statute, you figure out what the statute means. You don't defer it to anybody. You don't have different levels of discretion or anything. You make the best you can. And if you actually read the Chevron statute, it was pretty clear in the statute, in the section at hand, that the administration was right. And when Justice Stevens says, oh, there's another provision and another the section which covers another thing so it's ambiguous he was just asking for trouble and for the next uh, 31 years we've had it there's also a federalism angle here with kennedy which is what you were suggesting a moment ago kind of a weird one he was concerned that it might be too much of an imposition upon the states to have the federal government conditioned subsidies like they were in the statute which he said brings up the specter of something called constitutional avoidance explain what he meant by that well, the doctrine of constitutional avoidance says if you think there's a serious constitutional problem about the interpretation of a statute, rather than given its obvious natural or literal meaning, you interpret it in such a fashion so as to avoid any actual or potential constitutional problems. That is, you try to save the statute from constitutional defect by interpreting it in a way. If you think about it, it's kind of a companion piece to Chevron deference because instead of having the sort of ordinary meaning prevail, you've got this institutional thumb on the case. Well, then the next question is, is there a constitutional doubt? And what's so clear about this is the constitutional doubt that Justice 
um, that Justice Kennedy raised was one that Justice Kennedy raised. I cannot recall anybody at any point at any stage in this argument on either side saying in effect that you tell states that if you want to get a particular package of benefits, you sign up. If you don't want the package, you don't sign up, that that would count as coercive. But now once he puts it into play, uh, the question is, do you really want to decide this without letting the two parties argue it if it turns out to be decisive? Or do you want to just dismiss the entire thing on the grounds that it's the fevered invention of one judge? But now Justice Kennedy has done this before. You get four liberals who say it's clear one way and you get four conservatives who say it's clear another way. And Justice Kennedy says, I got a better idea. And what he does is he muddies everything up by taking a fifth position. So in one of the cases to construe the Clean Order Act, he didn't know what it meant. So the four liberals said you could do anything you want with uplands that may influence through some kind of drainage system the rivers. And the conservatives saying waters of the United States doesn't cover dry land. And Justice Kennedy says facts and circumstances. Well, that case means his rule dominates and the liberals basically get the shot at doing this. Um, so we did it there. There was another case involving retroactive benefits because uh, Eastern Enterprises versus Appel and uh, the four liberals wanted to say, of course, it's fine to be retroactive. Four of the guys said no. Justice Kennedy says, you know. I think it's a facts and circumstances test. I don't think it should be decided under the takings clause. I think it should be decided under the due process clause. And so now that opinion sort of becomes the dominant opinion. And all of a sudden, the liberals won that one too, because for purposes of future precedent, he's lined up on the deferential side with them. So the man is capable of doing these kinds of things. I regard it as essentially generally intellectually very dubious to come up with these cockeyed theories, particularly to come up with them when nobody has any advance warning. And in my view is if this were to become the dispositive issue, having been neither briefed nor argued by either side, they should call for a re-argument of the case, which is again another disaster because the whole thing now will be strung out even further. The uncertainty hurts everybody. And remember, it's not only the people who want the coverage who are hurt, it's the people who don't want the coverage and don't know whether they're going to be forced to buy it. Now, Chief Justice Roberts stayed very tight-lipped here until the very end. But at, at, at that point, he said essentially, well, if this is a matter of how the executive branch interprets the statute, then couldn't the next administration just come in and change it? What you were referring to with, with Chevron, that has made a lot of conservatives nervous that based on his track record, Roberts may see this as his out. There's a release valve in the political process. Keep the courts out of this. You share that concern? Uh, but I just don't understand the man. I share every concern that everybody has. <laughs> My view about it is that that is just whistling Dixie uh, in the following way. We don't get another president in office until 2017. If you then try to reverse a program when the expectations become strong and settled, it's going to be much more difficult than if you nip it at the bud. Um, it does show to me what is the terrible danger of Chevron, which is the flip-flop question that I talked about. If all these things are ambiguous and we have really strongly polarized political parties, it means that every election is not choosing a new administration. It's deciding whether to validate or invalidate huge numbers of actions of the old administration. And there could be absolutely nothing sensible about having that degree of uncertainty. So I certainly hope that he realizes that this should be a Section 1 position and that the arguments for saying that the statute are unclear, that, oh, it appears in this place in the statute rather than in that place in the statute – 
That's almost, to my mind, an absurdity. This appears in the place where you're talking about credits that you can get, and that's exactly where it ought to appear. There's no mystery about this, and as several state attorney generals wrote, including one in the Wall Street Journal this morning, this issue was raised countless numbers of times, and these states decided that the burdens of setting up an exchange were too heavy, and they didn't want to do it. And now, in effect, they didn't want the federal government to do it either. If they get exactly their way, how are they coerced is a question which is not clearly answered. Richard, Justice Alito raised the prospect that if the subsidies were overturned, the court could delay the application of the ruling so that there was time to work out a transition to keep it from being too abrupt and to give Congress time to work out some sort of remedy. So two questions related from that. One, how much flexibility does the court have to take those kinds of concerns into consideration? And two, does that sort of delay strike you as a reasonable accommodation should they rule that way? You know, very tough question again. There are two pieces of the things. One is, uh, as far as I can tell, there's no difficulty whatsoever in saying we're going to delay the enforcement of this statute with respect to people like employers who say we don't know whether we're bound or not bound. Let them all figure this thing out one way or another and do an accommodation because they haven't taken any steps in reliance and most of them, frankly, don't want this thing to be imposed upon them. It's the people who have signed up in good faith and now they're going to be left without their subsidies. There's no state exchange that's available. And well, what's going to happen to them? Well, you know, it's very complicated. There are other programs for which they might be eligible one way or another. It turns out, by the way, it's not such a terrible alternative not to get a subsidy and to go into a market in which you're not faced with all these um, very heavy essential benefits burdens. So what you do is you say, okay, you're not covered. Buy yourself a standard commercial policy. Um, you know That's not so bad. A lot of the problem with Obamacare is that the president and the Democrats seem to believe that that coverage, which has been offered by no party at any time in any voluntary market, is so essential that we have to offer it here. And that creates this incredible disjunction. And so there's a huge question as to which way the dislocations go. This is a massively coercive statute. And when you're doing it on the employer side, you're running a real risk that people will be fired, their hours will be cut down very dramatically under 30 so that they will have fewer opportunities. It's not that you're just hurting the people who have signed up by deciding to strike down the statute. You're hurting the people who don't want to sign up, um, who are going to be really savaged if it turns out that their hours are going to be cut by what's going on. So the hardships are on both sides. Um, Generally speaking, Courts do have a power to defer statutes, and ironically, the Obama administration, of course, deferred the employer mandate for an entire year when it became clear that it couldn't be done. And there's no question that courts have done this sort of thing. But then the next question asks, which parts of it do you defer? How long do you defer it? Can the deferral be renewed? Is this to be decided by a district court, by an appellate court? Do you have to march back up to the Supreme Court and so forth? I think in the end, the jousting that will take place under that is worse. I, I, my own view about it is you should decide this thing up or down. I think, in effect, if you start looking at the usual rules of statutory construction, which is sort of political objections based upon hardships cannot overcome the meaning of a clear text, the idea that we could have done it better if we thought more about it is not a reason to change it and so forth. Uh, Judge Griffiths, when he wrote his opinion before it was basically vacated in the District of Columbia Court in the companion case, you know, he went through all the statutory 
uh, canons of construction, and they all pretty much line up against this. It's not an ambiguous statute. Its location doesn't matter. The fact that it's the only provision that governs it doesn't make it harder to interpret the statute. It makes it easier to interpret it. So as I mentioned earlier, when Justice Stevens decided that you needed deference to deal with the single source rule under the EPA, he cited an unrelated provision which used a similar term to create an ambiguity. Well, there's no other parallel provision around to create the ambiguity. I mean, I regard the sort of the, the textual arguments as being wildly overblown. I understand the dislocation arguments. And so then you have the following question. You're in the Obama administration. You're doing something which you know to be rather gutsy. Why don't you seek some clarification by getting a declaratory judgment in court or something of the sort which would allow you to get clarity on this particular situation? Our current procedures are not very good on allowing for that stuff to happen. But the point about this is if it's a straight question of law, you would really like to have some kind of a clear, shall we say, pre-clearance method. So rather than waiting for this thing to go, the day that this regulation is announced, you want every conservative group in town to mount its challenges so you could get this thing resolved before its enforcement. And our current rules on standing don't allow it. And that just shows how terrible um, all the procedural stuff, the self-imposed limitations on its own jurisdictions that the courts have created. Let's make it in the simplest form possible. There is nothing that has happened since the day this statute was passed or the day that that regulation has been promulgated that alters the way in which you'd argue the case pro or con. So you want to do it early before all of these reliance and inconvenience arguments come in and the fact that nobody was allowed to do so is I think a very damning condemnation of the Supreme Court's view on who has standing to challenge what kinds of statutes at what time in their application. Last question, Richard. You said in our discussion earlier this week that you anticipated a 5-4 decision from the court against the administration after hearing the oral arguments, more or less confident in that prediction. Well, you have to be less confident in the prediction because Justice Kennedy comes out from left field with an argument that nobody raises. And look, let me tell you, you know, it's really complicated. Suppose he's right. Then you say that the statute is coercive by doing it only for the states. You now have two questions. One is, well, do you really want the courts to make massive appropriations that were not approved by the executive branch? Justice Kennedy's a big believer in separation of powers. He doesn't want to do that. So maybe the correct thing to do is to strike down the whole thing, including the state part, um, so that you get parity by having nobody get anything as opposed to parity by getting everybody get anything. Uh, we don't know what the answer to that question is. And, and so the answer is, I mean, this is kind of a, you know, a, a wild card being thrown into the deck. Um, if you would ask anybody before the argument whether this issue had been raised, they would look at you kind of cockeyed. I can't think, as I said, of anybody who raised it. So what happens is there's now more uncertainty and if you thought it was 5-4 and the uncertainty clearly comes from one of the five, then there's less certainty that we have today. I mean, this is really a sign of just how awful this has been. Every one of the Supreme Court cases on this has been something of an intellectual circus in terms of what's gone on. There's not a single opinion I think that anybody has written, which I I actually regard as having been rightly done. That includes the original decision, the NFIB case, the Hobby Lobby stuff. I think the result was correct and the decision was something of a mess. And this case, I think, promises more of the same. The issue is almost too big for this or any other court to handle it. And Lord knows whether or not this nation can survive the kinds of uncertainty that are going to be buffeted around by this unhappy interaction of Congress, the courts, the administrative agency, and a very willful president.
Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.